It's Wednesday, May 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this week signed a big tech bill aimed at cracking down on social media giants like Facebook and Twitter for deplatforming conservatives. This bill makes it illegal to remove candidates for office from their social media in the lead up to an election. It also makes it easier for the Florida Attorney General and individuals to sue big tech. Anna Ceballos, reporter at the Miami Herald, joins us for this new law that will most certainly be challenged in court. Next, another important piece of the vaccine puzzle has come into play. Moderna says that its vaccine has been found to be 100% effective in kids ages 12 to 17, two weeks after their second dose. Moderna will seek for FDA authorization early in June, offering more choices for families over summer vacation and before the new school year begins. Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today, joins us for how this will help bring us closer to herd immunity. Finally, the recent unionization effort at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, has failed, but the fight continues. In a hearing before the National Labor Relations Board, the union is arguing that a mailbox installed on the grounds by the post office interfered with how workers may have voted. Amazon wanted workers to use the mailbox to cast their ballots. Sarah Morrison, reporter at Vox's Recode, joins us for why the decision to overturn the votes may come down to this mailbox. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Courts may award up to $100,000 in damages for each proven claim. These protections aren't just for elite, but for everyday people, millions of people. Joining us now is Anna Ceballos, reporter at the Miami Herald. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Thanks for having me. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill this week aimed at cracking down on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and basically would make it illegal for them to deplatform a candidate for office in the run-up to an election. The bill would also make it easier for Florida's attorney general and individuals to sue these big tech companies also if they feel they've been deplatformed wrongly and whatnot. So, Anna, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing in this bill and, uh, and kind of the implications of all of this, because it's open up to legal challenges. There's a lot going on here. Right. Like you said, there's there's really a lot going on. And Governor Ron DeSantis has been talking about this for a few months now. He started making a big deal about this issue back in January when he was talking to a group of conservatives back in Texas. Um, and then he asked lawmakers to really crack down on these big tech companies, which, you know, there's bipartisan support that maybe these companies are too big. But what there is no bipartisan consensus or there are still questions and concerns about first of all, can Florida even do this? And second of all, what is the intent and the motivation behind this proposal? And like you said, you know, the the, the proposal does take aim at social media companies who do plot uh, political candidates for either statewide office or local offices. And it allows these candidates, if they are removed for whatever type of content they post that violates the terms of agreement for those companies. They can uh, seek compensation from the company and sue them for up to $250,000 a day. Can they even do this? I mean, this is where a lot of the legal challenges are going to lie. Obviously, you're compelling speech onto private companies. You know, they have their terms of service. If you're breaking them, 
generally that's that's the rule. You're breaking it, they can deplatform you. So there's a lot of First Amendment stuff going on there. And then can they regulate these companies that operate across state lines? Just because it applies there in Florida, would it mean that it applies somewhere else? These are where all the legal challenges are going to be stemming from. And, and then it, it is pretty narrow, I guess, in that sense that it is only for political candidates. It, it just doesn't open it up a uh, to free speech for everybody, which is something that a lot of conservatives feel that they're being targeted unfairly by these big tech companies. It does offer some uh, recourse for, for everyday Floridians, I guess you could say, but the toughest penalties or toughest provisions are in favor of candidates who are being deplatformed. But like you said, you know, there is still a lot of questions whether Florida will be able to enforce this. You know, there's language in the bill that says, that this is the intent of the state, but it can't trump state law. And here, what the state is saying is, you know, we deem it to not be good state. Yeah, they're saying that they should be allowed to be on there for an extra 30 days if they need to remove their information and all of that. Ron DeSantis, as you mentioned, had been talking about it for some time now, especially after President Trump was taken off some of these platforms. DeSantis himself, though, was kind of taken off a little bit, too, uh, in April, he did some type of YouTube panel discussion. They removed that video because uh, they said it violated some of the misinformation policies that YouTube had. Right. That was a roundtable during the pandemic. It was in the, in the heat of the pandemic when there were all these discussions being held here in the state. He would he would regularly hold roundtable discussions. And one of those, he invited some health experts who, um, you know, violated YouTube's COVID medical misinformation policies and DeSantis defiantly held another discussion with the same experts a few months later. And he started promoting some smaller tech companies like of the likes of Parler, if you will, right, that they're more favored by conservatives. And it's called, I believe, Rumble. It's a video platform that is more alter- an alternative to YouTube. So we're seeing a trend of him just fighting pretty hard, not just with policy or attempts to to create new policy that could trump state law or potentially act. But you're also seeing him act in just promoting other types of alternative media that he views as not silencing the conservative voices. I've had on some of your colleagues from the Miami Herald to talk about different things that the governor there is doing. He is a rising star in the Republican Party. A lot of people are saying he might run for 2024 for president if uh, former President Trump doesn't. So the question is, what does this type of action do for the national conversation? Are we expecting other states to pick this up? Because as I said in the beginning, you know, a lot of conservatives feel they're being targeted when it comes to free speech. Right. I mean, Florida always pegs himself as the leader in the nation, right? He, he, he's been using this bill as, uh, you know, this is the first in the nation and everyone's going to follow suit. We're, we're among, but there are other states that have been not quite like, Florida with censorship, but there are other states that have targeted internet companies because Congress has been pretty slow to act. Um, so we are seeing kind of, you know, state action for certain things, but I believe Florida is um, the first one to target censorship um, the way that it did in this bill. And, you know, it's one extra thing that he can take. He, he's expected to uh, you know, being good standing for re-election next year. He's a, a popular governor here in Florida. And, it, you know, there's a lot of things that he got done uh, during the regular legislative session that just ended in May. It's a 60-day session where he 
got this big tech uh, bill and he got an anti-riot bill. He got a voting bill. He got, um, you know, just name it. I mean, he even got teacher bonuses for, for at least some, um, some teachers. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things in his uh, legislative goodie bag, if you will, where he can just <laughs> pretty much take it to the road right. and, you start promoting his agenda and say, hey, I got these things done. And these are issues that are really popular among the base of his supporters. And so you could argue that it's not only going to benefit him here for a reelection in Florida, but could potentially put him in a national scene. And he takes to Fox News all the time and he can raise that agenda at a national level and test the waters if he could potentially run for the White House. Well, we'll see how that all develops. Anna Ceballos, reporter at the Miami Herald. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If we can uh, get a significant percentage of both adults and adolescents immunized by the fall, then middle schools, high schools are going to be extremely safe. And then even elementary schools are going to be safe because we'll dramatically lower transmission, provided we can fix the awful pocket that we have in the U.S. where people aren't getting vaccinated. Joining us now is Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. You're welcome. We've got some good news and another piece of the vaccination puzzle here. Moderna has now released their information on, on their studies in children ages 12 to 17 they said that their vaccine is 100% effective in that age range two weeks after the second dose. So some very good news here. Uh, Elizabeth, what are we seeing out of Moderna? They haven't actually published the full data set. That will come later, but they've published most of it. And it is, it's good news. So this is in adolescents. Uh, they looked at 3,000, actually it's 3,700 adolescents. Two-thirds of them got the vaccine. A third of them got the placebo. In the kids who got the vaccine, after the first dose, it was 93% effective. And after the second dose, two weeks after that, there were no cases of COVID among the vaccinated participants. So that's pretty darn effective. Side effects. Everybody's always concerned, especially parents when they're getting their kids shots and all. Nothing really to report there either. Just the same common side effects we've seen adults experience. Right. So for the first shot, the biggest side effect was your arm hurt where you got the shot pretty common. Uh, after the second shot, the most common side effects were, uh, you know, a day or so of headache, fatigue, muscle pains, and chills, which is, is basically your immune system ramping up to fight off if it were able to encounter COVID-19, and you get a little echo of what it would feel like to actually have covid these results are going to be submitted to the FDA fairly soon. They say maybe early June we might be able to get the emergency use authorization for this age range just in time for going back to school. A lot of vaccinations could probably take place over the summer, and that's one of the biggest pushes. One of the biggest concerns is getting kids back to school safely. We saw news out of New York, news out of Los Angeles that they're going back to school, no more remote learning when the fall comes around. This is good news, and and uh, you know I'm sure a lot of parents are going to try to get their kids vaccinated before the school year begins? I, you know, I was up at my local Walgreens last weekend and I walked in and I was like, good God, what is going on? Because there were all these parents and teenagers. And then I realized, oh, it's all the kids who were there to get COVID shots because now they can. So, And, and we had the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which was authorized 
uh, down to the age of 12 in May. And if we add Moderna on top of that, it's, you know, it's just more vaccine that can go. And, and it's, a, it's, I mean, we, we keep talking about wanting to get as many people vaccinated as possible and get as close to herd immunity as we possibly can. And even though we have a lot of, we have some vaccine hesitant adults, uh, adolescents, they're a big chunk of the population. You know, we're, we're talking 17 million people are in this age range in the United States. So getting a lot of them vaccinated will be a positive thing. That leads perfectly to my next question, because when we kept hearing about herd immunity, the magic number was about 70 percent, anywhere from 70 to 90 percent would would be ideal for that uh, of people being vaccinated. Were kids included into that number or were we just talking about adults when we were throwing those numbers around? We're talking about the population as a whole. So that's the total population, not just adults. Oh, then that's great news that uh, that this is now available to them and teens and kids don't really get the most serious cases of COVID. It, it's happened and, you know, there has been some deaths, but children do represent about 14% of all COVID-19 cases, but they can get sick and they can pass that virus on to others. So that's why it's important to have them vaccinated as well. Exactly. That's, I think, the biggest thing uh, in this age range is, yeah, they don't, they typically don't get sick, but... They can give it to their parents. They can give it to their grandparents. They can give it to their teachers. And as we know, the older you are, the more danger COVID-19 poses to you. So the kids might be okay, but they sure as heck don't want to give it to their grandparents or their parents or the adults around them. Elizabeth Weiss, National Correspondent at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. Amazon sent a lot of things to uh, the employees, encouraging them to use that to vote. They put a tent around it, sort of saying vote here, encouraging them to use that to vote. You know, Amazon's pretty notorious for how it surveils its workers. And so, you know, if you're an Amazon worker, you could possibly think Amazon is watching me. You know, like- Joining us now is Sarah Morrison, reporter at Vox's Recode. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. We had been following this story of this uh, attempted unionization at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. You know, in the end, that ended up failing. There was about 6,000 workers that were eligible to vote by mail. Only about 2,500 workers actually voted, and it overwhelmingly lost. So no union there at that warehouse. But since then, you know, there's like an appeal. They're looking into it to see if they could possibly be overturned. And a lot of this has to center around a mailbox that got installed by Amazon there on the grounds. They're pointing to it saying that they had outsized influence over the ballots because of this mailbox. And a lot of people are saying that this could really be the thing that possibly turns this whole thing over. So, Sarah, uh, help us uh, walk through some of this. Basically, they're trying to organize to uh, join, I believe it is, the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Uh, They've been doing this for several months. They finally got a vote. Due to COVID, they wanted to do it by mail. Amazon actually really wanted to do it in person when they lost. And then Amazon started sort of pressing uh, the United States Postal Service to have a a mailbox installed uh, on the property. Eventually, they were able to do that. It's not like, you know, one of those like blue mailboxes that you would recognize, but this like gray cluster mailbox was put in the parking lot. And Amazon sent a lot of 
things to uh, the employees, encouraging them to use that to vote. They put a tent around it, sort of saying vote here, encouraging them to use that to vote. You know, Amazon's pretty notorious for how it surveils its workers. And so, you know, if you're an Amazon worker, you could possibly think Amazon is watching me, you know, like maybe looking at how I vote seeing who voted, who didn't. I'm not saying that Amazon did that, but there is, if you're an employee, a possible you know, way you might think that. And then the second part of this is the National Labor Relations Board is the one that conducts these elections. They oversee these elections. When you have like a company sort of putting a, you know, a, a, essentially a ballot box on its property, putting sort of signage around it, you know, the employees get the impression that it's Amazon running the election. So there's a couple ways that there's an appearance of Amazon having like surveillance or Amazon running an election that could be considered not appropriate in the hearing. And those, I think, are the two big points that the union is hoping will get these results overturned and then possibly let them have another vote. It's kind of funny to think that the union is putting so much on this mailbox when the voting really seemed that nobody was in favor for forming the union. You know, the the votes opposing it were so overwhelming. So that's kind of like an interesting thing. But people are pointing to this mailbox as actually the thing that could overturn that vote. There's a lot of uh, emails and stuff that were exchanged that shows just how much Amazon really wanted that mailbox put in there. And it was their second choice. You know, they initially wanted a drop box. They settled on this mailbox. But there's emails going back and forth at the highest levels of Amazon and the post office. And in terms of the vote, the result, yes, it was overwhelming, but there were 500 votes that were challenged and thrown out because they wouldn't have affected the result. So it may have been closer than we think. And again, there's also like over half of the employees eligible to vote didn't. So you have to wonder with those results, how many people were intimidated and didn't vote at all? How many people felt like they should vote the way Amazon seemed to want them to? Again, I'm not saying that's why. But these are sort of factors that could play into the result, and which, which is why you know, the union would like it to be overturned. Amazon has a relationship with the Postal Service. It's a massive customer for them. And obviously, as we saw in the emails, this was sort of a very unconventional thing for the Postal Service to uh, agree to, but they did. The highest levels of both Amazon and the Postal Service were involved in this. So Amazon really, really pushed for this mailbox. So it's obviously something that's a pretty significant factor for both sides here. What are the next steps for this then? Uh, you know, how long does this go on for before they decide if they do overturn something or not? And, th- and then after that, as you kind of alluded to earlier, the next steps would be another vote, basically. I think, you know, once the hearing concludes, which I'm actually not even sure if it has been out, if it hasn't yet, it will very soon, then you have the decision has to be made, you know, the arguments have to be reviewed. If the board rules in the union's favor, then we would be looking at another vote, that ruling would come probably weeks or months from now. And then again, if, if it is to have another vote, there's a whole bunch of like, you know, arrangements having to be made to do that. So if the final outcome of this is a second vote, we're a long time away from that. Sarah Morrison, reporter at Vox's Recode. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.